This episode is brought to you by Direct Drilling, a locally owned family drilling company based in Kununurra, servicing the Kimberley and the Northern Territory. All drillers are nationally licensed with the Australian Drilling Industry Association, ensuring best practice, the protection of water resources and guaranteeing the life of the bore. Find out more at directdrill.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Carbon farming is a topic that has been dominating the Australian media over the past several years. I don't know about you, but even with an agricultural science degree, I still struggle to understand how it works and how there's a market for it. If you're in the same boat, then you're in luck, because after listening to today's episode, your understanding of carbon farming will have definitely improved. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Dave McQuee from Bolger Down Station in the Goldfields region of Western Australia. Dave has a carbon project on his station, and in our chat, he explains how it works and what the benefits have been to the landscape, business, and people involved. After we recorded the episode, I realized there were a few things I forgot to mention, so you will hear me pop back in twice during the recording to include that information. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Morning, Steph. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about the carbon farming project that you're running on your cattle station in the Goldfields region of Western Australia. We'll be covering general concepts of carbon farming, carbon markets, project types, and frequently asked questions. However, some of what we will speak about will be specific to your project management plan and the carbon company that you're in partnership with for this project. Now, we both have ties to the company who manages your carbon project, that company being Regenco. So I thought we should start our chat by declaring our associations for the sake of transparency. Yep. No, fine. I have no issues with that. I think we have to. Absolutely. So uh, what's your involvement with Regenco? Um, my involvement with Regenco is a, is a, is a shareholder, um, smaller shareholder. Um, a few of us got together. A couple of years ago, and sort of we're looking at it, looking at the, looking at carbon, and looking at uh, companies that were out there, and really couldn't find anything that that I thought fitted my um, expectations and requirements. Um, and these, the other, the other people involved were were quite 
um, receptive to new ideas, uh, different ways of looking at it, different ways of doing it. Um, so we decided there and then that, yeah, okay, we might try and do this all on our own and form our own little company and go from there. And yeah, that's history now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so my involvement is for the past month, maybe six weeks, I've been doing uh, a little bit of uh, communications work, including some photography. Um, so, yeah, just, just here, not technically employed, but just doing some contract work at the moment. So um, nobody asked us to do this podcast episode. As anybody listening knows, I'm always on the hunt for new podcast guests. So I kind of, once I got the connection to you through doing some stuff for Regen Car, I was like, oh, I want this guy on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take contacts wherever I can dig them up. Yes, well, unfortunately, you're dealing with someone who doesn't really know what the hell a podcast is. He's never listened to a podcast. Um, I've only just got an iPhone. <laughs> so, yeah, a bit technologically disadvantaged I am, but, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> That's right. We've got about over 120 episodes out at the moment, so you'll have plenty to listen to on any future drives to Kalgoorlie or Perth. Good. <laughs> so let's start off um, by talking about where we are today. We're sitting on um, – Bulgadown station, which is in the goldfields, and we have never had a station from the goldfields on the podcast before. So this is very exciting and very much, I think, not what people envision when they are like, think of cattle stations. I think our mind always heads straight north. So can you tell me about, you know, the when, where, why, you know, what is Bulgadowns? Ah, uh, well, Bulgadowns was the original lease, uh, pastoral lease that we bought in 1984. It's in the northern goldfields, about 340 kilometres north of Kalgoorlie. Um, we were, oh, I was 18 at the time, just turned 18. Uh, Dad had been a manager for a company for a number of years and we decided that it was, we were young enough and silly enough to really want to have a go at our own. So we bought the first, the first lease, Bulgadowns. We bought that in 1984. Um, originally, I think it cost us about $110,000, which was a king's ransom in those days, and nowadays it almost seems like pocket change. Um, and then we added um, half of another station in the 90s called Ida Valley. Um, I then did a voluntary lease adjustment when the Gascoigne Murchison strategy was on. Uh, I sold that to Parks and Wildlife and bought... Um, the developed section of Cashmere Down Station and amalgamated the two leases, so they're now one lease. Um, and then about eight, ten years ago, we bought the property to the north of us, which is Dandaraga. Um, originally, we had about 640,000 hectares. Now we've got about 1.6 million. Um, so we've, yeah, put that together in, in, in our lifetime with a lot of luck and a fair bit of ass. <laughs> <laughs> And so just to check, when you said you've gone from 640,000 hectares to 1.6 million, uh, you, you didn't put your unit of measurement on there, but you're actually switching over to acres, yeah, wasn't acres, it? Sorry, Which yes. I only know because yeah. we had a, a yarn while we were driving around the place this morning. So Goldfield- no, Actually, sorry. No, they were both acres. Yeah, 640,000 oh, okay. acres originally and now 1.6. So that's almost almost quadrupled. Yes. Almost. Yep. Yeah. And the country on the north, Dandaraga, was a lot better- um, production country. It was a lot sweeter country. Uh, fairly fragile, but yeah, a lot better country. Whereas the, the original Bulga Downs lease is a fair bit of Spinifex and it's a bit, it was a bit of a heartbreak block. So what can you tell me about the gold fields and the country types down here? 
it's so different to, I think, what we often hear stories about in this podcast from the Territory or the Kimberley, you know, those sorts of places. It's Look, it's, it's, it's similar to a lot of the country south of Alice Springs, actually, this country's through here, getting down towards the South Australian border. Uh, the difference between there and here is this country's not as sweet. So when you get a, get a rain, it takes a lot longer to respond. It's slower response country, not quite as fertile. Uh, it's a little bit, um, higher in salt content in the ground. Um, and that's possibly associated with more with the greenstone with the mineral belts that run through it. So, you know, as, as a pastoralist on a, on a lease in the southern rangelands, you're dealing with mining companies all the time. Um, you have to learn to sort of get on with people a bit. Um, so it's, it's harder country, uh, is, is the, is the only real way to describe it. Um, it gets some very big rainfall events every now and then, um, and they usually happen about every 25 years. Um, to give you an example, our rainfall is um, about 9 inches a year, 9 to 10 inches a year, um, in 80, uh, 94, 2004, sorry, I think it was, when Cyclone Bobby came through, we had 28 inches that year. We had 16 inches in three days. So we do get some big events. Um, they can be... Very destructive, but they can also be very um, beneficial. It's just wild to think of that much rain, uh, and when, and just you saying the word cyclone because you're so far inland. But I guess it, it's the system after. No, it was still a Category One cyclone when really? it went over the top of us that night. We're yeah. like not in the middle of Australia, but we're pretty far inland. Yeah, five hundred k from the coast. <laughs> wow, that's um. There you go. Learn something new every day. Now, uh, actually, the first ever cattle station that I worked on is in the Goldfields region. And it's only been in recent years that I've learned. So first, you know, when you drive, for anybody who's driven around, say, southern rangelands of Western Australia or maybe even perhaps in South Australia, I just thought it was trees and shrubs and that's it, like no grass. I was like, oh, cool. And this is just, you know, and then kind of big open patches of country and and kind of, you know, like gravel and trees and shrubs, and that's what it was. But I've come to learn in recent years that that's not uh, how it was pre-white settlement. No, look, there was a lot, there was a lot more, um, a lot, lot different. There was a bigger, bigger variety of, of feed in the country. I'm sure um, we part of the Ida Valley block was had hadn't had domestic stock put into it. So I was lucky. I had the ability to see what this country can look like. Um, and this, this particular country through here, it, it changes so quickly. It can go from very heavy watercourse, heavy mulga watercourse country to, to, uh, open shrubbed, um, and treed granite country into quartz country into ironstone country into spinifex into a salt lake. Um, and the, the thing that amazed me when we first came up to have a look at this place was the, the country type changed not over a matter of kilometers, but over a matter of 40 or 50 meters. Yeah, it, there was, a, there is a very distinct line and it just bang, it starts and stops. Uh, it just doesn't meld into each other. Um, so it's, it's, it is an interesting country. I find it a very interesting country to, to, to travel and to look at. Um, a really good example of that is if you're going east from Kalgoorlie on the Transaxis Road, you'll have beautiful big bluebush flats and next minute you're just in gum trees. Yeah, there's, and, and these flats won't have a gum tree on them. They're, they're just wide open space of bluebush, but then all of a sudden you've got a, you've got a gum, gum forest. <laughs> it is, um, it is incredible. And uh, I think you said earlier today when we were driving around, there's, you know, perhaps 13 or 14 different land systems. On your le- different on your leases, types, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, which is uh, um, wild. We, we've actually got one point 
um, on, on, on the bulga lease. Um, and there's one on Dandaraga, which has a few more, I think, uh, from memory. But, um, on that particular, we call them, I call them junction points. There is six different country types all come together in one particular point. And you can actually pinpoint that on the ground. You can, you can go out and you can put a peg down and you can actually almost see the corner. It's, it's like a piece, like a pizza. Yeah. Like cut up in yeah, slices. Exactly. Yep. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's a bit unique that way. Now this country has also, um, had some, well, I mean, the entire rangelands anywhere in Australia, there has been some historical degradation. Can you fill us in on that and, and how that? Came about. Yeah, the, look, most of this, a lot, lot of this country through here and, and through the gold fields, um, the pastoral leases are fairly small. Um, yeah, they, they used to carry between eight and 10,000 sheep. Um, now that in today's economic climate is, yeah, you can't make money at that. You, you, you're really pushing everything to the limit just to try and make an income. Um, so the, the historic degradation, I guess, for want of a better word, small stock, um, generally degrade country very quickly. Um, and, and it, because it's a rolling front thing, it happens just gradually over a couple of years, few years, or over a number of years, depending on your stocking figures. Um, you really don't see it. So until there's nothing left and all of a sudden it's there and it's, oh, I've got a problem now. Um, but the problem, in this day and age is that most people see the country and think that is the normal. That's what the country is like. It's not. The country can be very different to that. Um, it's a, it, it takes a, a, a bit of forward thing of a lot of new ideas, a lot of different approaches. Um, and you can turn that around, but some of the degradation issues as a pastoralist, yes, some have come from our forebearers. Um, the lack of understanding of the country, uh, Large numbers of stock, big watering points. Um, so you had a, you had a compounding effect of sheep eating the feed, ground compaction with feet. I mean, they don't call a sheep's foot roller a sheep's foot roller for nothing. Um, so yeah, that, and, 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 and the industry has caused a lot of the problems. But on the other side of that too, industry was also being led by government policy. So, it's, it is a two-edged problem. Um, luckily nowadays government policy has changed. Um, so that side of the equation has been taken out. Um, and now the attitude of pastoralists really is starting to change too. It's, 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 it's probably changing, changed a lot in the last four or five years, uh, quite dramatically. Um, people are now recognizing their problem, accepting their problem and now trying to do something about it. So, um, uh, yeah, effectively, you 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 had nothing left on the ground. You had a few trees. Um, in our you know in our situation, you had a lot of you know a lot of big old mulga trees, but no new new trees growing. Very little ground cover. Um, in actual fact, when we first bought this lease, you could see for two to three kilometres underneath the trees. So mustering it on a motorbike was actually fairly easy. But yeah, I wouldn't like to try and do that now. <laughs> I think it is important to note, like it can be very easy to point the finger and say, oh, you know, those early pastoralists, they, you know, just absolutely flogged the country and, you know, ran it really hard. It can be really easy to kind of go down that narrative. But when we think about it, the agriculture in this part of the world, um, in this, in this context, in pastoralism, you know, is, you know, 
less than well, less than 200 years, people came to a brand new country, uh, so different from Europe and all the knowledge that, you know, people had accrued over hundreds or thousands of years in agriculture in that part of the world. And it's a really different land system here. And people were learning on the go and mistakes were made, but no, no one really, well, for the most part is out there deliberately trying to, to flog country. Like they not, were learning. Not de- well, not deliberately. I mean, there was, there was, um, a lot of the, some of the properties and, and, and quite a few of the properties really were developed by, um, overseas people, um, by some of the bigger stock firms. Um, so they didn't actually often get to see the country. They, they looked at the bottom line. You know, we, 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 you know, we need to earn money out of this thing and this is how we earn money. Um, so quite often the, you know, quite often the pressures on a, on a, on a manager or, or a, you know, an owner too, um, were financial, which caused them to push the boundaries hard. But the, look, the big thing nowadays is the mistakes have happened. We're partialists. We're actually part of that. So we've got to own that problem and deal with it and move on with it. Um, so it's not about, I, I personally don't see it's about laying blame. It's more about accepting, um, owning and then changing. Uh, they're the, you know, they're the three sort of fundamentals that if we're, if, if we're going to turn the, the rangeland condition around, um, they're probably the three main fundamentals we've got to accept and just shift on and move on with it. And that can be applied to many other aspects of life. So there's our philosophy for the day. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, that really, as you said, as you were saying, I was like, that could be applied to so many different Own aspects of our life. Yeah. We don't learn if we don't make mistakes. So moving on to carbon farming, when and how did you first hear about carbon farming and how did you become interested in it? Uh, look, probably 15 years ago, um, I was chair of the Southern Rangelands NRM. No, not Southern Rangelands NRM. I was chair of the ESRAM project, which was a thing funded by uh, NRM, uh, a program of, of monitoring and reading country and setting up with different management structures and styles. ESRAM is Ecologically Sustainable Rangeland Rangeland Management, which Mm -hmm. was the, was the follow on, um, sort of follow on from EMU, which is Ecological Management System. Um, so we were discussing carbon even back then. Um, but the big problem with that in those days was no one really knew the science behind it. Uh, it was a very, fledgling thing world markets weren't talking about it um, people were really only just starting to talk about climate change and you know that we might have to do things differently uh, so I guess that was my first introduction to carbon um, but on a, on, a, on, a, on an adjunct side to that um, we were also involved with um, UWA's environmental science courses um, so I had a had a yeah, quite often had some fairly high powerful scientists, yeah, hanging around at the homestead, annoying the hell out of us. Um, and I got to understand a little bit about soil um, structure, soil health, soil bacteria, um, and learned that all of those things actually are driven by carbon. So it, it's 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 very fundamental in the base of, of of an ecological unit. So what is carbon farming then? Carbon farming is basically taking carbon out of the environment and putting it into the ground or into a tree. And why do we want to do that? Uh, because the more carbon we've got in the air, the hotter the climate's getting. 
Okay, so which is changing rainfall patterns, changing climate. Um, it's poisoning the planet. So this has got to do with like greenhouse gases yes, and all that very kind much of so. ballpark of things. Yep. So we want to take it out of the environment and, and lock it up. Put it into the soil. Put it into the soil or put it into a tree. Okay. So there's, yeah, so there's different ways of doing that. There's actually four project types, uh, currently, I guess, approved, uh, by the Australian government. Uh, there's HIR, human induced regeneration. There's a beef cattle herd management, um, savannah burning, savannah burning and a whole of carbon farm sink. I always wonder, I'm like, did I say that in the right order? Um, and so you've got a HIR, HIR a human induced yes. regeneration. regeneration I'm just popping in to add on to what Dave and I were just discussing. There's actually a range of approved methods beyond what we had just noted, but not all are relevant to the rangelands. The whole of farm carbon sink method that I referred to earlier, even though I mixed up the order of words and that, it's actually still under development. So the main methods that are relevant to the rangelands are human-induced regeneration, the beef cattle herd management, and savannah burning methods. How does um, HIR work? HIR works that you have to encourage, nurture, for want of a better word, um, set the groundwork for nature to actually let the country regenerate um, in trees, in grasses, in shrubs, in, in, in a whole host of, of different Species. Um, the main ones that we look at and get get you, you can claim uh, credit for are the trees. Um, so our focus is on trees, but it's not the only focus. We also have a focus on the re- on the whole of whole of um, range system. The entire landscape. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what what we really try and do there is we we try and set some parameters. That encourage nature to do what nature does, because if if you let nature do what it wants to do, it does it very well. Um, so what we try and do is we try and take the brakes off that. Um, we reduce our stocking numbers, we shift our watering points, um, we we don't put water in in uh, high carbon potential areas if we can help it. Uh, if we have to put them in that, then the stocking numbers that are there are, are very much reduced. I our um, Project guidelines, parameters for one of better word that we came up with is, is experience has taught me here. If I keep the stocking numbers at 60% of recommended carrying capacity in that area, and the recommended carrying capacity is set by um, science from the Department of Agriculture, um, if I keep the, the carrying capacity at 60% of what our recommended carrying capacity is in those areas, then the impact on anything that's trying to regrow is minimal or nil. Um, so they actually get the chance to grow. So if this, if we were out here in like virgin country that had never had livestock on it, could, would there be an opportunity to regenerate or is it, is it because this country has been grazed? It's, it's because this country has been grazed hard that this, this opportunity is presented. Yes. Okay. So you can't do a HR project anywhere and everywhere. It's, it has no, to, there it, has it, to be an opportunity. If, if the country is already, already in forested as such, which is, um, it's got to be, it, to be classified as forested by the, by the federal government, it has to have a 20% canopy cover per hectare. Um, so if it's already at that, you can't use that country. 
as, as a HIR project. So you're looking at the degraded country, the scolded country, the, the severely um, flogged country, for want of a better word. Okay. So when we talk canopy cover, so that is uh, like all the leaves yes. coming out yeah, on out, the branches. Yeah, the outside of the canopy. The, yeah. So if we're in the sky looking down at one hectare, at least 20% of that needs to be have leaves or be canopy. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's the goal. That's, that's yes, what we want. That's what, that's what and we're so it has to be less than that to start off in the project. Yep. Um, we're starting off in areas that have less than 20% canopy, canopy cover, cover per hectare. And the, the goal for the regeneration project is to increase that canopy cover to, to, 20%. to 20%. Yes. Okay. So over 25 years. Yes. Yeah, so or, it is or, a- or to have it reach the potential of getting that. I mean, some of the trees will take longer than 25 years to grow, but if you've got them germinated and you've got them into the teenage stage of their life, um, then they will go ahead from there. So you have actually reached that potential where it will get to 20% canopy cover. So it is, I suppose it's about setting up the conditions or setting up uh, the environment for success that these trees, so say now a little baby mulga tree is growing and you are stocked you know, as per usual, uh, it's not uncommon that maybe a cow or a goat or a sheep or anything else would come and graze that out before it, before it gets to grow. Like yeah. we're kind of yep. When it, when a mulga tree is small and it's got one or two spines on it, if both those spines get eaten off, that's the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. So effectively, you you, you want them to grow up. Um, you really want to be looking at getting them to two meters at height in twenty five years. Um, you know, to do it to so that they've then got the tool themselves potential to go on and grow because once they get to that height they will survive then they then they can i guess it's kind of like um you know like a joey in the pouch and then it can come out of the pouch and kind of survive on its own so yeah yeah it's, it's like a kid you, I mean, you've got to protect you know, the trees up until they can kind of hold their own yeah yeah i mean a baby is born and up until it's about 16 years of age you you really have to look after it and hand feed it and you know wipe its nose and everything else but then after that you sort of go okay well you can you've got the tools to survive on your own now and you throw it out there and Hopefully, you've given them the tools to make the right decisions in life, so it goes on. <laughs> I'd love to know what tools you're giving your trees. Like, what what advice? Uh, just creating the environment where they can go on when they can. Yeah. Um, so, tell me about the trees, and you know, obviously, we've we've driven around your country here. Um, there's trees everywhere, all different shape, uh, all different shapes, sizes, you know, and whatnot. What uh, I'm guessing there's some eligibility criteria for who can and can't be in the project or, or count in the project? So the, any when, you, when, you, when you're looking at a project, you need to have a look at the trees and anything that is under two metres of height is eligible for a project, um, as long as it's not at 20% canopy cover. So if you've got a lot of big trees and no trees, then you're actually very eligible because you've got the potential then to grow a lot more trees. Um, if you look around and you've got a lot of country that's, uh, got trees over at just at that two meter level, then that's possibly not going to be eligible because they'll be right on that borderline and you can't actually increase the canopy cover as such. Um, so effectively, a tree has to be under two meters, um, and have less canopy cover per than 20% per hectare to be eligible for a project. Okay. So let's go through the process of setting up a project. Um, because there's, there's quite a few steps in that and I've got them written down here so I can make sure I've got it right in this conversation. So I've got the first step is a desktop consultation. Yeah. I, I, generally a carbon, carbon company will, 
ring year because they've, they've yeah they've they've had a look at the vegetation maps around Australia and they've picked out the hot spots of where they're going to get a good bang for buck, <laughs> for whatever better word. They're, they're they're economically driven, the same as most things. So uh, they'll yeah you know, they'll ring you and say, look, we've 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 had a look at the the vegetation maps, and your country is actually quite eligible for a carbon project. Are you interested? Um, and then you'll go through with them. You'll you know some people ask, what's a carbon project? Um, some people will be up with that and go, okay, yep, right here. Um, what potential have we got? Um, so effectively, you'll sit down with them and you'll have a look at look at the potential, and then and then sit down and crunch some numbers with them, because um, it, it part of it is an economic thing. Um, and if you feel that the return is going to be there for you to do it, um, then they will offer you um, a either a, either a MOU um, or a contract there and then. Um, if they offer you a contract there and then, then they'll actually go and do a lot more detailed study because the, the initial one is very broad. Um, and when they go into the detailed studies of what's on the ground, what areas are very eligible, which ones aren't, um, quite often you'll find the numbers will increase. Okay, so uh, the first few steps I've got written down here, and this may also be specific to Regenco as well, um, obviously every company has their own, has their has own, own process. process yes. So we've got the desktop consultations, um, and that is, I understand with Regenco, it's uh, it's a, it's not necessarily the model of calling up people, but also you you can approach them as well. Yes. Like it's a two way street, and then you can ask for a, de- a, a desktop consultation. Uh, then, if you're interested, um, you know, and you think there might be potential there, but like mutually. Then there's like an on-station visit. Yes, they, yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess I've combined the sort of two rolled them a bit quick. Yeah, um, yeah. They'll they'll then come on property, um, and they'll have a look at it with you. You'll have a drive around. Um, they'll make their assessment there, and then and then at the end of that sort of, I guess, um, looky see, um, they'll say, "Yep, we're prepared to continue on the basis of what we've seen. Um, are you prepared to sit, you know, to to, to continue?" In what you've discussed with them on the trip around, um, let's face it, information's always shared a lot better when you're driving around looking at something. <laughs> um, so they'll then they'll then sit down with you, and you'll actually um, do a contract with them to um, run, sell, um, do all the science, the reporting, and everything um, with that particular company. In our case, it was Regenco. Um, and then once that's happened, um, they'll go away. They'll sit down. They'll crunch their numbers. They'll come up with a with a uh, computer generated random plot picking session, uh, so that you'll have a series, a whole series of different plots of different country types, um, all the way along the line. This is all done at random by computers to try and take the bias out of it, um, so that they then they'll then come back onto the ground. Uh, they'll actually do the ground truthing and have a look, um, and then go yes, um, and they'll will then come back with with actual figures of what they reckon you can generate. And then is it after that point that the project is registered with the Clean Energy? No, regulator? the project the, the the project is generally registered um, with the Clean Energy Regulator. Uh, initially when you first signed the contract with the okay, region so because the sooner you get that project registered is when you actually your county your your ability to earn an income um, from the carbon credit starts 
Okay. So, yeah. So, um, I'll go through, I'm probably going to um, repeat these steps several times in this part of the conversation, particularly because this is an audio uh, medium and people can't see like my list of steps here. But so you've got a desktop consultation, then an on-station visit. Then there's, you know, uh, the contract uh, is offered and perhaps signed and that leads to a more detailed desktop. Um, the con- yeah, the contract is offered and signed and then the project can be registered. Yes. So then yeah. the project is registered with the clean energy regulator. regulator. Then I've got that the, the project is, um, so once it's been registered, then really it's kind of like nutted out, like, and developed, uh, in partnership with the pastoralists. So yeah. Well, then, then, then they come in and they do that ground, ground truthing or the baseline survey. Um, so that you've got a known starting point. Um, and this is what, is there uh, so that you've got something to scientifically measure every five years to prove whether you're actually doing it or not? I've got just between those two steps, so I've got that the management plan is sent to the clean and energy regulator. Well, the man- management plan is developed by the by by you by yourself mm-hmm. and the carbon company. Both have input into it, um, so that you, you, your management plan is the key pivotal thing in it because your management plan has to encourage the growth of the young trees. Um, also keeping in mind at the same time that you have to be financially viable while that's happening. So the management plan needs to be rigorous but flexible um, because conditions and seasons are flexible. Um, it's got to be a little bit of adaptive management. It's got to be a little bit of knowledge. Um, it's got to be observations. Um so that effectively, when you're getting around doing your bore runs or you know looking at cattle mustering, whatever, you just you're just looking all the time and just seeing what impacts your livestock are having on the countryside. It might and might not be only be livestock; it might be impact of of what's happening with the water off your main roads, um, how much uh, grasses there is happening around the countryside. Whether you need to increase fire breaks, whether you need to upgrade your fire breaks, uh, do maintenance on fire breaks, things like that. Uh, whether you might need to change a bore change the positioning of a watering point because it's just not quite in the right place and they're actually hitting that country a bit harder than they should be. So once the project is registered with Clean Energy Regulator, then the management plan is developed. Yep. It's then sent to the Clean Energy Regulator and once they've approved that management plan, um, then you do the baseline ground truthing. Baseline ground truthing can be done before the management plan. It can be done after the management plan. Okay. It doesn't really matter what what's um, process they're done in, but that has to be done within a certain period of time. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they can be done at exactly the same time. And then I've got here that 12 months after the project is registered, uh, that to work out how many credits you've generated, like so the, the carbon company will work out how many uh, credits you've generated, but that process that they've used to work out how many credits you've generated has to be approved and verified Signed off by an independent. Yeah, so auditor. so before you can before you can actually claim your credits, uh, you have to do a um, you have to do a truthing session on, I guess, for one of it, an audit. Um, so they will they will have a look. Uh, the carbon company will have a look through satellite imagery and various other means that they've got at their disposal to see how the country's going remotely. Um, some of it will be they might send someone in to have a look if there's some areas that might be a bit iffy. Um, they will come up to you and they'll do an audit on what you've done for the year. Um, so if you have said, right, we're going to reduce the stocking numbers to 60% over four years, um, 
you've got to show that you have actually gone out of your way to reduce those stocking numbers. Um, if you haven't, well, yeah, then you're going to have a pretty hard time passing the audit. Um, once you've done your audit and, and, and everything is ticked off and, and, um, within the, within the company as such and within your own process, it then goes to a third party and they audit your process to make sure that your process is right so that you, you, you have done what you have said you've done. If they tick off on it, then you can actually send your application to the clean energy regulator for the credits to be issued and they'll have a look at it go, yep, okay, this is all, all the boxes are ticked, it's all hunky-dory um, and we'll, yep, you've earned whatever number of credits you've earned. Then it's sort of rinse and repeat to an Every extent. Every year, yep. So, so I'm just going to go through that again for everyone listening along. Um so that we've got the whole process kind of in order. So a desktop consultation. Yep. Uh, and then an on-station, like in-person on-station visit. On-station visit, yep. Then a contract. Yep. And at some stage there's a, maybe a bit more of a detailed desktop analysis done, yes. some other stuff. The project is registered with the Clean Energy Regulator and uh, then over the next little bit of time, so the management plan is developed between the carbon company and the pastoralist. And the baseline survey happens. Yes. yes. And the management plan is sent to the clean energy regulator to be signed Approved. off on. Yep. And then um, then you, you go, and 12 months later, the- it, it, Look, it can be 12 months, it can be two years, it can be five years, okay. depending on how often you want to do it. It could be six months. Oh, okay, um, cool. So at some stage, uh, some uh, pre-agreed upon yes. time, <laughs> time frame, um, the carbon company will- Work out how many credits that you've generated. Um, and then that has to be all signed off on and approved, like that methodology, I suppose, and that, that process by an independent or third party auditor. Yes. Yep. And then once they've signed off and said, yep, you're accurate. You're doing what you said you do. And we agree with your methodology. You send that report to the clean en- energy regulator and say, here's my report. Here, here's may all I, our data. May I please have my credits? <laughs> and they say, yes. So here you go. No, they'll look at it and go, yep. Okay. Yes, this is right. Or we actually think on on what our figures are that you're a little bit high, or yeah, yeah. Uh, they never tell you you're too low. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. But they will, yeah, they will possibly say no. We feel that you've actually pushed some of this country in, which is not ready to come in yet. Okay. Um, and so, so for the bulk of what we've just said of this process, a lot of that is general, and it doesn't matter which company you're dealing with. That is the process. But I'm, I'm. Some of these bits, you know, with the the consultations and the on station visits, that may vary company to company. But yeah, but, each but the, company does it differently. I'm yeah. sure of it. I mean, I, I'm only only involved in one company. I, I know, um, but as parcels, we all talk when we're kicking tires and things like that. And I know some people have done um, had to do things differently to the way we have. Um, yeah, and and they're they're with different companies. So yeah, every company has its own you know, okay. little unique pieces. So I just wanted to clarify that because while the the order of you know registering your project, then it being approved by the CR, and then you know being you know uh, audited and then getting your credits, like that kind of stuff is standard no matter what. Like that is standard yeah. protocol to be involved that's, in that's any the type. Guidelines. Yeah. Yep. Uh, whereas the other little bits of um, can, can vary from company to yeah. company. So, so just to really clarify that for people listening. And look, some of those some of those things that have to be dealt with in in the process of con- of a contract and and getting a um, a uh, project registered or even it's after registration is you've got a thing which is called an eligible interest holder consent. Um, so if you've, you know, if you've, if you've got a mortgage, you have to go to your bank and get their consent to do a carbon project. Um, 
you have to might have to deal with Aboriginal title. Um, you might have to deal with mining companies. Um, so anyone who's actually got a uh, a mention on the on the land title, um, it, it might also be an infrastructure corridor or you know things like that. You actually have to get their consent to do it. Um, so that they're aware of what you're doing and it's not going to impact on what they're trying to do or, you know, it might enhance what they're trying to do too. So, um, I, you know, we found in our own process that be very upfront about it, um, set some realistic parameters, um, and things will happen reasonably quickly. We, we were actually the first to get bank sign off, um, because we were very, very, you know, very upfront about it. Um, and in the process of doing all of that, we had to do a lease valuation for the bank and all that sort of stuff, um, which was interesting because our value of the lease actually went up quite dramatically with a carbon project on it. So the bank really didn't have any issues with it. They said, yeah, what did we sign? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a question I've got written down to ask you later on. Um, so coming back to your HIR project, Human Induced Regeneration, so the project is registered and then a management plan. So it's not a, so you actually have to, to earn credits, you have to have a management plan. Yes. You have to be out there doing things, changing things, you know, trying to, uh, you know, provide the right environment for this regeneration to occur. In your specific plan for Bulga Downs, what is involved and, and noting that it'll be different property to property and it's also very um or at least with Regenco, like it's very mutually agreed upon. Like you it's not like they've just said you have to do this, this and this. It is developed together. Yeah, look, we we this was something that I looked at very seriously with our contract. Um because if you sign up for a carbon project and sign on to a management program, you really have to do it. Now, if you're not doing it, where does that leave you? Uh, where does that leave the carbon company? Um, there was a whole host of things that came into it that, that they played it alongside each other with the management plan, with the contracts, a thing called the project proponent, um, which I, yeah, look, I'll, I'll try and expand them together as a go because they really need to go hand in hand when you're doing it. Um, so I might be jumping the gun here. Um, I know, but it's, it's to understand it and get a better handle on it and see where you need to head. If you, if you're looking at that, you need to understand these things, very basic fundamental things first. The project proponent is the person who carries the risk. So if you're the project proponent, you have the risk. Um, you also have the cost associated with monitoring, with uh, measuring, you know, with the science. Um, I took exception to that because I can grow trees. I don't necessarily need to know their scientific name or how much they're going to grow per year or anything like that. My expertise is actually getting the country to regenerate. So um, I actually approached, well, I was approached by a company and, and, and we, we looked at it and then we, we sort of formed Regen Co., to fit, uh, to fit the, the, the dealing with the pastoral area, um, more so than just dealing with it as a freehold area. Um, a pastoralist doesn't have the ability to meet the shortfall financially if he doesn't produce all the carbon. 
So if you've, if you've got a carbon contract that you've locked away for, you know, 200,000 tonne over five years and you can only fulfill 100,000 tonne of it, you have to go and fight, buy 100,000 tonne on the open market. That would send everyone, that would send most parcelists broke. And that's what the project proponent has to do. They have to fulfill the, 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 the agreement on that contract. Now, by making a, a carbon company as such the project proponent, they will have eight or 10 or 15 or 20 different properties all feeding their carbon in. Um, so at the end of the day, they can say to, the, to, to whoever, um, right here, we can, can deliver a million tonnes of carbon or million, million ace accus. Um, the individual properties will flex and vary with seasonal conditions and, and growth rates and everything else. So at the end of the day, Joe might get paid half of what he thought he was going to get paid because he only produced half of that carbon. But Fred on the other side, he might have had a really good year and gone gangbusters and produced three times the amount of carbon or twice the amount of carbon. So then he'll get paid for that carbon, applied for and then, and, and received and then paid for. So at the end of the day, you've still the carbon company is still delivering on that contract. Uh, it puts the flexibility back into it um, and takes the risk off it. So that's that's the project proponent side, and that's really one of the sides that's the most scariest, and, and it's probably one of the sides that's least understood. Um, it, As I say to anyone who rings me about it, the first thing you need to do is if you get given a contract, take it to your lawyer, have a, get them to have a look at it, You've got to be comfortable with it and you have to understand it. Whether a lawyer explains it to you so you can understand it, that's fine. But you need to do that. And it doesn't matter what carbon company you're with yeah, or anything. Make sure you understand the contract. Um, so yeah, that, look, that's, that's the, that's the project proponent side. So by taking, by, by taking that side out and having the project proponent, the carbon company is a project proponent, you then have to look at your management plan. And say, right, well, what is our management plan going to encompass? How are we going to do it? What are we going to do on the ground? Uh, but in conjunction with that in, in our contract, we put in there uh, a couple of simple words was quite simply called by mutual consent. So that one party cannot override the other party. I can't, the carbon company can't come in and tell me how to run the place. I can't tell them how to run their business. Uh, by putting that, that, clause in there, it keeps the phone lines open. So we have to talk about what we're doing all the time. It, it, it just just encourages us to come together and if there is a problem, well, we've got to sit down and sort it out because you know, one can't overrule the other. So putting them in, then we developed the management plan and our, management, our Pacific management plan here was you know, we, we reduced our stocking rates down in the carbon areas and look, we've taken this a step further and put it on, all, on, on the whole of country. Um, to to sixty percent of recommended carrying capacity, um, and every year when we do our our audits, our inspections, we have a look and say, okay, at that level of stocking, is are those stock impinging, starting to show any impact on our carbon regeneration? Um, if the answer is yes, then we have to take it down further. If the answer is no, we can leave it at that for a while until they get a bit bigger, and then we might be able to increase them a bit. So it's, and this is where I say about the adaptive management plan. Um, we set our figures reasonably low at the start because there is room to grow after that if we want to, or we can pull them down further than that. Um, the other side of it is that we were, we looked at where our water placements were, where our feral animals were, um, and that gave us some areas that we know we, we found we needed to, to concentrate on earlier than what we expected, um, to put 
total grazing management yards and to shift waters around and take them out of the, you know, off the edge of the carbon area. Um, so speaking of feral animals and native, so the whole, you know, whole of grazing pressure, it's one thing to reduce your cattle numbers and effectively reduce your grazing pressure from that, but it, it won't do much if next minute, you know, horses, donkeys, camels, goats, you know, kangaroos all come in and kind of fill their place. So does your project have to encompass how you'll manage? Yes, it does. Non-livestock I mean, we, 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 grazing we, we, pressure. We have a have a, um, a feral animal control program. Um, we we deal very heavily with 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 permanent trap yards because we don't have a lot of river systems through us where you've got natural waters. Uh, we've got water holes and things after a rain, but they, most of the times they last about four months. Um, we've got one big system which can last up to nine months. Um, so we've put we we had to yeah we we, we use a a total grazing management yard, a trap yard. Um, so they're working for us all year and they will actually encompass all different types of animals. Um, so those yards we can actually trap anything from goats to camels in um, and everything in between. You can trap kangaroos in them, you know, all that sort of, all that sort of thing. Um, kangaroos are, are a native, so there is, there is different criteria for them. Um, yeah, we have, we, we have a few camels, which we're getting rid of. We have horses, feral horses, which we're getting rid of. Um, and those numbers are, are coming down quite, yeah, quite well. Um, Tell me more about the, what you're doing with your waters and, and the location of them. And I guess some historical context as to why your waters originally were where they were. Waters are an interesting one. I mean, up until recent times, waters, you've had to put a water where you could find it. Um, because the cost of shifting water was very expensive. So most times you'd drill a borehole. If you got water, that's where the watering point was. Um, a few factors that came into that one was usually getting gear out to where it was. We didn't have bulldozers. We didn't have graders. So you could actually, you, you, you towed gear out and you bounced them through the countryside, picking a road as you went. So most times the waters were in the open country, which is also generally your fragile but high, 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 value country so you'd whack a water in the middle of the high value country and flog the hell out of it um so i've taken an approach or we've taken an approach here where we 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 try and shift those those watering points out from the edges of that that fragile country try and put them out sort of five to eight k's away from that country so that the livestock um are going out and grazing where the where the high um high value country is for a shorter period of time getting enough energy out of that country to then come back through the harder country and and fill up on protein because you need energy to feed bacteria to convert protein into fat um so yeah it, it instead of instead of putting it all in the all the eggs in one basket we actually spread the eggs around <laughs> so it's not just a case of you know uh destocking to an extent or dropping your cattle numbers back it's also about um, using other measures such as, you know, moving where your waters were to new locations to change their grazing habits. Yes, and exactly. I, was, I was actually going to, going to, when you finished, I was going to say that, that instead of, there, there is other, other ways to make cattle use or, or animals use different type of country. Um, we actually use the water so that, um, the waters are put into the harder country so that the cattle have to come back into that harder country. So you're actually go, gra- changing their grazing pattern 
um, so that they're, they're using, instead of using their 20% of the country, they're actually using 80% of the country, so in which case reduces the stress on everything. And as we saw today, we drove around and saw some very um, young, uh, juvenile mulga trees. Oh, they're starting to, Yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. not even teenagers yet. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I was going to call them like infants and I, th- I was like, I think the technical scientific term is juvenile. Uh, so in your project's been going, you know, I mean, you've been doing this for a few years now and you pointed out like a, a whole, not crop, but um, there was, you know, maybe a dozen or so in this one area. Like yeah, a, a germination small, of Yeah, yeah. of, of of um, juvenile trees coming through. And yes, because but- you've got those, because you've changed uh, where the grazing, pre- like the grazing pressure and also where the cattle are grazing, where those trees may have previously been not, they may not have gotten the chance to become an adult, um, an adult but tree. We've, we've now yeah. given them the chance to be able to, to be able to do that. Yes. And, and look, in most of those areas when we're getting around now, we actually have, oh, you can see four or five different levels. Um, so it's not just a once-off event. It's happening all the time. They're replacing each, you know, with, with, with different age groups, different, different, um, yeah, they're going from juveniles to teenagers to young adults. And, you know, the, there's a, there's a whole host of them there, a whole, whole yeah, a, a healthy sweep of sizes. Um, I'm glad we've covered this because I think, and as anyone would expect, there's a lot of misconceptions, uh, out there about, and misunderstandings about carbon farming and how it works. And I even personally, for a period of time, thought that it would just involve quite simply locking up country, like fencing it off and not letting anything in there. And that, so. That can actually work against you because, I mean, part of your, part of getting country to regenerate is, is also controlling fire. Now, one of the cheapest, probably most efficient forms of controlling fire is by grazing, you know, especially if you're in, in, in country with trees and grass because it's the grass. A tree fire, unless you're in the southwest, won't carry without grass. You've got to have a fire on the ground to keep the keep a fire front going. So if you can reduce that biomass, so you're reducing the heat of a fire, reducing the speed of a fire, you're also controlling the fire um, so that you've then, got a, you've then got an ability to be able to go out and put that fire out. Um, reasonably easily, rather than trying to deal with a with a rip roaring fire front that's you know travelling at twenty five kilometres an hour. The cheapest form of doing that is with livestock, and to some extent, they also are a useful tool for uh, nutrient cycling as well. You know, yeah. to play in the in the broader yeah. ecosystem. Yeah, they they got a fertiliser end and a, and a food end, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it also carries on a bit further than that. That that some of that biomass that they'll actually walk into the ground and churn into the ground as they go, and um, and then then that breaks down, which then produces the nutrients, which then produces the the you know the the energy for the plants that or the the fertilisers for the plants to grow. Now let's get into the. Um the bit that probably everybody wants to know about, everyone who's listening, the money side of carbon. That's a serious game changer. Um, look, I'll just say at the very start of this that this the 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 carbon farming and HIR specifically in the rangelands is the first time in my life, and I am fifty five years of age, first time in my life I've seen a, seen something come along where pastoralists actually are given the ability to fix their own problem. Um, and also given the resources and the cash to be able to do it. Um, so it's, it's a, it, to me, it's a win-win all the way down the line. It's not a government handout or anything, anything like that. It's, it's, it's new money coming in. It's a new stream of income coming in. Um, so yeah, 
now we'll discuss the money. And So one tonne of carbon that's been sequestered uh, will generate one what's called an ACU, so an yes. Australian carbon, carbon credit. Australian yeah. carbon credit yeah. unit. Yeah. Yep. So let's work on, we're going to work on a completely hypothetical example here. Um, so let's say you have a property and, um, you generate 100,000 tons. I picked that number, which is quite big, but you're also on a, even though we're on a hypothetical, we're out in the rangeland. So let's think a big patch of land and you're able to gen, uh, sorry, to, well, generate 100,000 Accuse or sequester 100,000 tons of carbon. Yep. So on, and then there's, there's two, I guess, main, uh, options here. Like you've got the open market or the government system. So let's talk about the open market yep. first. So what are your selling options? The selling options through the open market is you can put them on the spot market at the time. Um, so basically you just, you get your car, you get your credits and then you go to your carbon broker and you, or your, your, your carbon company. Um, and well, they, they will go because if they're the project proponents, they have control of that site. Um, and they'll go right out. Oh, we've got, hey, everyone out there, Mr. Shell, Mr. BP, Mr. Cowatex, Mr. Chevron, Mr. Whoever, we've got a hundred thousand. Mr. Qantas, Mr. Mr. Qantas, Kmart, yeah, Mr. Mr. Kmart. Yeah. Yep. Mr. General Person down the street, yeah, Mr. Superannuation Fund, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Um, they will say, we've got 100,000 accus here. Who's interested? And then you might get one buyer approach you, you might get 10 buyers approach you. You hope for, hope for more than one because then you can have a bit of an auction yourself. <laughs> um, so um, you, you can agree to that and – Come up with the price. The current, the current price at the moment is $44 a tonne, I think, or $44 a credit at the moment. Um, so you're talking some pretty serious money. Um, and this is also why it's better off to have someone else controlling that side. Keeping in mind that the carbon company get paid a percentage of what you earn. So the better price they can get, the more they're going to get paid. <laughs> so there, there is an interest in, in having them as a project proponent selling it. Because they're going to do the the damage to get the best price they can, because they're going to benefit from that best price as well. Um, and and so the spot market, I guess it's almost like like well the share market in that you know the price is subject to change. It is a market. Yeah, it's a market. So it can go up and down. It's yeah, like the price of fuel. It's quite flexible, <laughs> um, dynamic. I guess yeah. the, the prices. So then there's another option. So um, you can also sell a hundred percent of your carbon. Hundred percent of your carbon locked into another company or or to a, um, to a government contract, which we'll, we'll cover that one later. Um, yeah, so you're not relying on the market price on the day. You can say, "I'm right. Well, I'll sell sell all of my carbon to you for five years at X number of dollars per ton." Um, and they'll go, "Yep, no worries, sweet. Let's do that." So coming back to my uh, aptitude for coming up with analogies. Uh, this is really making me think of home loans and fixed on and variable interest fixed rates. Fixed variable rates. Yes. yes. So you've got a, so if you're selling on the spot market, it's like the variable rate. Yep. And if it's, um, if you're locking in a, a price for a contract, um, that's like your fixed that's time your rate. That's like fixed it's, rates. It's, yeah. You secure it on it. Yep. Um, are those your only two options? No, there is, there is a third option. A third option is you can, you can do a, do a, um, hedge your bets. <laughs> for want of a better word, um, you can sell some some of your carbon on a, on a fixed price. Um, you might decide to say, okay, well, I'm going to sell 50% of my carbon um, at $20 a tonne. 
um, and the other 50% on the open market with an increase of, say, 3% per year, um, and you can do a contract for that for in the, for five years through to 25 years. There's, you know, the, the choice is yours. Um, doing it that way, the disadvantage is, is you can actually lose out on money. But keeping in mind, this is money you never had anyway. The advantage of it is if the, if the market drops, the price of all of your carbon that you've put into that company won't go below your base price. Um, so, yeah, you, you, if, if at the moment carbon is at 40, $44 a tonne, so 50% of your market of your carbon is going to be at $44 a tonne, the other 50% might be at $20 a tonne, which is, which yes, you're going to take a bit of a hit on the first one, but if the, all of a sudden the market collapses and goes to $3 a tonne, you're still going to get $20 a tonne, 400%. So it really, I, I suppose, a, a large part of this depends on the- How greedy you want to be. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say on the risk profile. So you've got the option of um, just selling on the spot market. And so that would be- I, I High risk. High risk. Um, yep. So because you don't know, yeah, would the price could, you know, swing or, you know, or I mean, as as markets, you know, I'm not saying that it would necessarily, but the- it leaves you open to fluctuations in the market. Yeah. Yep. Then you've got an option of locking in a price. Now, say if your project is for 25 or 30 years, are you having to lock in a price for that long or can no, you do- No, you can, you can lock it in from anywhere from five years upwards. Okay. Uh, that, that, that will be between you and the company to actually sit down and work out what, what you're comfortable with, uh, what they're offering. Um, yeah, there might be a company offers 10 year contracts. You go, nah, I don't really want to lock it up for 10 years unless you've got some, some trigger points where it, Lifts the base price and such. But in saying that, if you've got some trigger points where it lifts the base price, you also got to expect some trigger points where it reduces the base price, to be fair. Uh, I mean, they're, look, a company is locking you in because they're hedging the bet that the price is going to go up and they're going to get a better deal, but they can't guarantee that. So you're hedging the bet that the price might go down and you're going to lock it in at the high price. (laughs) And then, and then so there's this option of, um, of doing a split and it's whatever you and the company agree on, whether it's 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, you know, 90-10, whatever, yeah. whatever split you guys come up with that um, you've got a, a like a floor price so that no matter what the price drops to, you've got like that safety net there, like like you said. Um, but if there is a swing in the market and the prices increase, you're able to uh, to um, capture that opportunity as well with, and benefit from that. With the other 50%. That. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever yeah. amount so, that I you mean, designate. Look, effectively over, over, over a two or a three or a four-year, five-year period, whatever, the the market might fluctuate between 20, 20 and $40 a tonne. Um, under the under the 50-50 system there, you're going to average $30 a tonne, um, and which effectively just takes the high swings and lows out of it. Um, and what that does do is on a business sense, it gives you a very good thing for budgeting. <laughs> now, um, what was the option with the – so that's the open market. That's the open market. There's an option to sell credits or enter agreements with the government. How does that work? Um, I'm not 100% sure how it's going to work from here on, but the way it has worked in the past is they have a thing called a reverse auction. Um, so you'll go to the government and say, right, well – um, we've registered a project. We reckon we can grow 100,000 tonnes of carbon a year. Uh, we're offering this carbon to you at X number of dollars. And everyone will do that, but no one knows what their price is. So everyone's price is, is different. You'll be given a, a, 
basically you, you go from what the what the what the sale price of the last auction was upwards. Um, now some people right up the top end won't get a contract because they'll be right out of the ballpark, and the ones that go below that, well, yeah, they're a bit silly. So it's kind of <laughs> like a silent auction. It's a silent auction, yes, yeah. but it's a reverse auction that yeah. they call it. It's uh, and so the government, so everyone puts in their. Bids to sell, and yep. the government is like, "Cool, I've got all these options." Yeah, and they and pick, what, it's, pick the ones they want. Yeah, well, and because it's a reverse <laughs> auction, they pick what's cheapest for them to buy. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, and the interesting part about that reverse auction is like it's like a silent auction, except a silent. Well, no, it's different than the silent auction, but um, you actually aren't allowed to tell people what your price was. Well, I was just about to say I was I was going to ask that there must be some level of regulation on that because that would be like yeah. collusion or yeah. price you, fixing you, and you have to you have all to that maintain kind of that nasty confidentiality stuff. yeah mm. and what they'll do is they'll come out and they'll tell you what the average price of the market was so yeah um say for instance you might go in at say ten dollars a ton but the average price was 12 and you'd be going oh damn i was two dollars below the you know but they below the average price but in also in th- remembering that that there has to be a lot of other people below that two dollars price, and other people above the two dollar price. So it, it, yeah, it's it's um, it just look. It puts when this was all starting, it actually put some stability into it um, because you knew that you did have a market to sell to. Um, as it's turned out, we can't produce the amount of carbon we need anyway. <laughs> That's why it's going sky high. So we've just gone through how you can sell credits on the open market or to go the, like through the government system. Do you say so? You're if you're generating a hundred thousand uh, accus, say a year, just for for example, do you have to sell them all, or can you keep some for yourself um, so that you can say that your own business is you can carbon neutral? Your own carbon. Yeah, no, you don't have to sell them all. Um, you can you can actually keep some in a, in, a, in a credit bank. Um, or if you if you were keeping some to offset your own use as such, um, you would get someone in to work at how much carbon you're producing, um, and then you would remove those and you'd actually hand them back to negate your um, your carbon use. Um, so, or or you'd sell them on the open market and buy them back and buy them off, buy them from yourself. There'd be a book figure transfer as such, um, but you would be covering. What your, what your output is, or you can leave them as a credit and you can sit on them for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. There's, there's, I don't think there's any reason, as far as I can find, there's no reason you couldn't have an, an ACU bank sitting there. Um, and those credits could be used in a hundred years time. Um, I might be wrong in that. I really haven't done a hell of a lot of research on that, but I do know that you can, you can hold credits over. Um, cause I have done it myself. Yeah. We held them over for 12 months and then I sold them at a later date because the benefits to us were a lot better. Also gave us some stability in the, in the flow of them. Um, so yeah, you can, you can hold them as, as a credit. You don't have to convert them to cash. Hello again. Just popping in with a little more information I decided to include given the benefit of hindsight. The carbon project we're discussing in this episode generates Australian carbon credit units, also known as ACUs. These are credits issued by the Emissions Reduction Fund, which is a part of the Australian government. Now, there are other types of credits that can be earned because there are accredited schemes beyond the Australian government, but that's not relevant to this project, so we didn't discuss it. 
So what is the process? I, obviously, this is a, uh, there's a lot of rigor in these projects, uh, particularly from the government side. Um, the auditing process, how does that work? Yeah, okay. The, the, the desktop, the, the annual desktop one as such is, uh, is done on, on satellite imagery, the auditing of, of the satellite imagery. There is, um, there's programs out there now that tell you how much vegetable matter you have, how much green index you've got, which tells whether the trees are growing. Uh, they're becoming very precise as, as, as science, um, and satellites and everything actually home in on this, on these sorts of things. Um, so that process, when you, when, when you get, when they're, when the carbon company is doing their audit on that side of it, they'll actually go through, they'll have to tell, you know, put into the report what system they use, what their parameters were and all that sort of stuff, um, to give you the answer, to give them the answer that they come up with. When you're doing a, 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 a desktop audit out here, um, out on the, on the farm gate as such, um, you will have your management plan, um, and then what you have to do is you'll go through and you'll tick off what you have done in that year that is lined up with that management plan. Um, and if if they line up, and then the the the, the green veg line up, well then you you you're pretty right. You're doing it right as such. Um, the five yearly audit um, is an actual on ground truthing audit where they send someone out with a tape measure. Um, and actually measure. They ha- you have these known plots that, that will remain a constant right throughout the whole project. Um, so they go back to those, those, those same spots and they measure what's growing. Um, so they do have a comparison from your baseline survey to every five years you have a, you know, you have a jump in, um, in growth rate, um, in height, in, in, in size, diameter, uh, species numbers, um, increase in numbers, whatever. Um, and they're, yeah, they're, look, they're not cheap. And as time is ongoing and, and technology is adapted for this, um, I think we'll find that a lot of this will be done with drones. Uh, because that is when we did our baseline survey, we had to get a chopper in. Because uh, some of the areas you get to, are, you know, you can't, there's no roads to go to them. You've, you've, and, or you've either got to walk in there, uh, ride a bike in there carrying you half a ton of bloody scientific gear with you, um, or you're flying in a chopper. <laughs> we found chopper was the most cost effective because uh, you could just jump from site to site. And you could have a couple of blokes out in front doing the measuring, then another bloke coming in doing the species counts and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but I, I feel in time that a lot of this will be done with 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 drones. Um, but even doing it with drones is still not a cheap exercise. What happens if? There's some, if something goes wrong in the project, so say a big fire wipes out your trees or there's a drought and they die, or I don't know if this is even possible, a flood. but, or a flood, yep. um, or I don't know, what if a loc- locust plague comes through and eats all the leaves? Um, I don't know if they eat mulga leaves, uh, or ants would come and, you know, eat your trees and kill them or, you know, if, so- if something goes wrong and all that, Carbon is lost. What happens to the project? Effectively, um, there is a, there is a clause in your contracts that's called a force majeure. Um, now I'm not that good with English, uh, so I had to look it up in the dictionary. Believe me. Uh, but effectively, what it means is that a, a, an episode outside of your control. Um, so if if you say you had a big thunderstorm come through hailstones and it stripped a, a belt of timber. A belt of country four kilometres wide by 100 kilometres long, 
that's that's a pretty fair impact. Um, you cannot control that. Um, and if you have done everything in your management plan, your fire breaks, your livestock management, your water placements, possibly even fencing, if you've actually said what you are going to do, then you are not held liable for that because that is something outside of your control. Same with a fire. If you've put your fire breaks in, you've gone out there, you attempted to fight the fire, you've done everything you can to stop that fire, but you've had a 47-degree day with a 50-knot wind up its backside, you're not going to stop it. That's outside of your control. You've proved that you have done everything that you possibly could to stop that event. Then that's when the government would look at it and go, okay, Look, they might not always, um, but they have the ability to say, okay, this is a force majeure event. We will stop that project there in that affected area and be ta- and that'll be taken out of the project for 10 years or until it's recovered back to the state it was when the last measurement was done. So do you have to, do, do you have to pay back the money or? No, you don't have to pay back the money, but you can't earn any, any more money in it until that country is either back at the same state when you earned the last lot of money from which might actually be outside of your project guide timeline. So in which case you won't earn any more money from that event, okay. from that from that area. And that's if you have done your due diligence and everything you said you would do in the management plan and that is when that – so you don't have to pay back the money if the government uh, decides it is a force measure. Yeah. Um, but if for some reason somebody has – not, uh, not done what say, they said like they were maybe going to do. Not put in their fire breaks. Then you have, have to pay an, back the money. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it really yeah. is incentive, and it's 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 incentive, but it's also insurance policy that you're going to do the right thing. Mm. Um, effectively, I mean, you you you're signing up to do a project that is going to lock carbon away, so you must do what you say you said you're going to do. Yeah. Um, Make sure simple. it stays where you yeah. put it. There's no so point you, in. Yeah, you, you, you can't physically do anything else to stop it, you're fine. Uh, but if you get a bit slack and go, ah, oh, you're not going to worry about the fire breaks this, you know, for the next 10 years, you'll be right. Our country hasn't burnt in the last 10 years. And if fire gets away, yeah, that could cost them. <laughs> so before we finish up, um, I do just want to ask you a little bit about the company we mentioned at the very beginning, Regenco who you're doing your project with, uh, because I think the story of how it came about is very interesting. Um, yeah, look, Regen Co. came about for a couple of factors. One was I really couldn't find someone that I uh, was entirely comfortable with. Um, I did have a, uh, have a false start with one company, but there was nothing happening there. Um, they certainly, you know, they weren't, weren't, Fulfilling, fulfilling their obligations, so we had to get it. We got, we got out of that. Um, but Regen Co. started. We started Regen Carp. There was a few of us. We had a vision, we had a goal, we had the ability, and we wanted to have some fun and do something that was right um, and right for people on the ground, right for environment, right for planet. Um, look, for want of a better word, give us all a warm and fuzzy. Uh, but all of us sort of, all of us were getting a bit older on in our teeth and thought, well, this would also be a good thing in retirement to do. You know, it, 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 it will give us something very serious to be able to deal with throughout, through, through whatever stages of our life. Um, I just find it interesting that there's so much boots on the ground experience in the team. Uh, you know, 
you know, like you're a pastoralist and also, so you don't work for a Genko, but you've had some input in the development, um, so that it really has been built, built developed, from the up. Yeah, yeah, and with it, the pastoralists in mind, they're not taking a pre-existing product, from my understanding at least, and saying, hey, you need to fit this. It's like, hey, how can we fit you, or how can we fit each other? It, it, it yeah, it, 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 it was. It was more about designing and coming up with a proper partnership. Um, and the only way to do that was design it from the ground up rather than the top down. Um, what are our needs? What are our ambitions? How do we see this working? How do we see it? What are the pitfalls? What are the danger points? How do we, how do we reduce them? How do we reduce the risk on the, on the person on the ground? How to reduce the risk in the project? Um, so it was really, yeah, it was really written from the ground up. Instead of having a project parameter and then writing the project to try and and then try and fitting these bits in from the ground, it was okay. The project's up there. These are the bits on the ground. How do we feed these into that project and get them there in the most efficient way possible? Um, and also the, the the least amount of risk, the least amount of angst on the people on the ground because it, it um, some of the some of the antics that were going on were very well targeted. High pressure sales antics, um, and I'm a bit of a cranky old bugger like that. When someone starts, you know, the hackles go up straight away. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want to sit back and I want to have a look at this, and I want to actually do my due diligence on it and see whether it's going to work for me. Because at the end of the day, I'm the one I have to please. Um, so by starting at the ground, having my wish list, and then having the the, the project guideline as such and then having the project company all of us putting our wish lists together and going okay well, where's the common ground so that's all the common ground so we'll take those ones out and then let's have a look at the pacific ones that are going to be anxious for each and see if we can reduce them and that it just went on from there and actually it, it all started around over a beer in, in a, in a at, at victor harbour on a friday afternoon <laughs> with with three people that had um the same Vision, the same will, the same want, but different expertises. <laughs> so what do you see um, the future – I mean, that's a big question – the future of carbon and carbon farming, or I suppose what, what, what do you see the opportunities in what it can do for pastoralists and the rangelands? Jeez, how long is a piece of string? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, let, let's start yeah, with property. Yeah, no, that's all right. No, no, I, 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 I would like to know uh, about property value as well, though. Yeah, property values with with a carbon project on them have increased. Um, uh, at the moment, there's very few properties that have actually been sold with a carbon project because right? people all of a sudden looking and going, yeah, I'm going to earn some pretty serious money here. I don't want to get out. <laughs> so, um, but certainly property values will increase. Um <laughs> And even after the carbon project, that property value will will maintain its its increase because it'll be in a lot better environmental condition. So the next owner will come in and be able to produce high quality beef. Um, so it, it it does have an ongoing effect even after the project is finished. Um, What it's going to do, what it can, what it has the ability to do, and I'm not saying it will do it, but it has the ability to actually regenerate and bring the rangelands 
back into a, a, a good, healthy system. Um, and keeping in mind that some of this is actually going to take probably 50 to 100 years to do. Um, so the ability to be able to roll these projects along um, and keep them going, because you can only do a project for 25, 50, 75 or 100 years. Now, most of the past releases are under 50 years, so most of them have only been done for 25 years. Um, there is some leases which are less than 25. They can't do a project. Um because 25 is the minimum that the state, that the federal government will let you do it. Uh, so, look, in the longer term, it will, it has the ability to, to increase the health of the rangelands, increase the profitability of, of, a, of a pastoral business or a rangeland, you know, a, a rangelands business. Um, so, business wins, environment wins, um, <sighs> Community wins. Community I mean, wins, rangelands yes. are a public, uh, you know, an asset of the crown. We they all have a vested interest in they them. They are a public asset of the crown, but it, it also it 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 has, yeah, you know, it has a possible benefit in assisting the health of the planet. Um, I know that's getting pretty big and pretty broad broad thinking, but a classic example of the pyramids. Yeah, you know, they built the pyramids with manpower, one man at a time. One man can't lift one of those blocks, but 300 men can. And you get enough people there, you can build a very big structure. So it's, it's a matter of, it's, it's, it's our way of actually doing our little bit to try and change things, to try and help things. Now, if everyone sort of gets a chance to do that somewhere along the line, um, then we can actually change things. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.